Let's go. Cra craziest army story. Um, I was on an aircraft. Let's see. Craziest thing on aircraft. I was on an aircraft where the jumpmaster got decapitated. I was. What? Yes. So. Welcome to the Present Fathers Podcast. This is the show that focuses on climbing the mountain of fatherhood together. We believe that dads matter. And that's why this show is for you. So gear up, dads. Get ready. It's time to start climbing. Welcome to another episode of the Present Fathers Podcast. Tonight we are joined by Adam Wood. Adam is a father, uh, has a very unique uh, experience that he's going to share with us. He's an author. He's a veteran. Uh, he's got a lot of things to share, so we are super pumped to have him with us tonight. Uh, Brandon is currently making his way back from the airport as we speak, so maybe he'll join in later. Otherwise, we've got the, the standard crew here of myself, Dustin, and Justin, and uh, we're going to get right into it. So, Adam, welcome to the show. How are you, Thanks man? Thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. It's good to be on with you guys. Yeah, we've been looking forward to this for a while, and uh, I'm very excited to hear your story. So, uh, why don't you just start kind of level set for everyone, uh, you know, tell us about your family, you know, how, how many you got and all that kind of stuff, and then we'll go into kind of the background and, and all of your experience and what you've learned through it. Yeah, um, I'm originally here from Connecticut. I grew up here, and uh, unlike most people from Connecticut, I don't have a yacht or anything like that. I didn't have a country club. I don't even know how to play golf, if you can believe that. I uh, grew up in a, in a pretty blue-collar family. Uh, my whole family was in the military. My dad, uncles were in the Marine Corps, Navy, so I really have that blue-collar mentality uh, growing up. And uh, I was actually, for a lot of years, was raised by a, a single dad with me and my two sisters. So um, a lot of kind of who I ended up becoming was based upon a lot of things that I experienced when I was younger and, and kind of seeing the things for, for my dad. Uh, I've been married for uh, seven years now. I have a uh, five-year-old, or soon to be five-year-old son, uh, who's just an amazing guy. And I'm sure we'll talk about his experiences um, and just really love being around my family and just, just, you know, I'm really blessed to, to have them in my life and just everything uh, they're, they're everything to me and, and just really enjoy everything about it. Yeah. I think we can all relate to just how rewarding fatherhood is. It's, it's, it's hard at times, but it's the most rewarding thing you can do. Um, so why don't we take it back? Uh, you know, you are an author of several ch children's books based off of your personal experience, your family's experience. Um, so why don't you go just pre birth, you know, kind of what just, Give us your story right from the start there and uh, kind of all the challenges that followed. Yeah. So uh, my wife and I, a few years back, decided that we wanted to have children. Uh, but my wife suffers from a thing called polycystic kidney disease called PKD. Uh, and that is a genetic disorder that happens. And her mom had it. Um, her uncle had it. And basically about 50 percent, you have a 50 percent chance of passing that along. So it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get it. But there's a high possibility of that. Um, her mom had a kidney transplant. Her uncle's had kidney transplants, as I said. Um, so at some point in your life, you will need a kidney transplant um, for that. Typically, it lasts anywhere between 50 to 60 years before you need that. Um, but my wife was really concerned about being able to pass that along. Uh, we looked into IVF. So we went through Yale New Haven initially uh, to see if we could find out if the embryo, we could locate the genome see if it had that in there and be able to not have those eggs be fertilized and go through that process. Unfortunately, going through a lot of those things right now, 
um, we noticed this wasn't the ability for us to be able to uh, what wasn't at first the ability to be able to find those genes, but we still decided to go through with the process. Uh, we went through a couple iterations at Yale New Haven. Um, we had some loss, unfortunately, uh, wasn't able to conceive that way. Then we decided to go to a more holistic approach. There was a place called CNY in Albany, New York. Um, very different approach. It was a lot more relaxing, more of a kind of a meditation type place. Um, and we were able to go through that process. Um, we had a couple of losses there. And then finally, we got to the point where we said, you know, this is it. If, if we don't are able to conceive now, um, then we're going to look at other options, whether that's adoption or just understanding maybe it's not our time or maybe we aren't meant to have kids. As, as hard as that is, my wife really wanted to have kids. I really wanted to have kids. Um, and it was important for me to be able to, to be a father. It's something that I always wanted to be. So we went through that process. Um, as we were going along, uh, our OBGYN and, and our doctors were closely monitoring. Um, my wife, especially with her disease, her kidney disease, she has high blood pressure, a lot of medical issues, and just there's not a really a history a large history to pull from of data and medical information regarding PKD and pregnancies and how that can affect that. Uh, at about 22 weeks, my wife was admitted to the hospital. Uh, she went to the ICU where we stayed for a week, uh, monitoring her and the baby. And that's where I was at by their bedside working, you know, watching over them, basically living there at the hospital for that whole week. And then as we kind of moved along, um, we started to have more follow-up appointments. Uh, about a week and a half later, after we got out, we got to the doctor and the doctor said, you know, your son's tracking behind. We think it might be time to start considering abortion. And with that, after all we had been through, all my wife had been through all the injections, she just broke down and we had to have her admitted as a result of that to the hospital. I was probably never more upset in my life with any individual as I was there, which is the way the doctor had approached it. And it was a female doctor. It wasn't even just like it was a male doctor. Uh, we stayed in the, we stayed in the hospital for about five days and I came in on a Friday and the doctor said, you're going to have a, you're going to have your son today. We're going to deliver at noon. My son was 25 weeks gestation at that point. So three months early, 15 weeks early. And I had no clue about prematurity or any of it. No idea what that would be like. Um, I didn't know what he would look like. I didn't know if he'd be fully formed. I didn't know what that would be for a kid that's essentially a whole trimester early. Uh, I, I had kind of assumed that he would come out and at best we would get an hour or two, maybe more with him before he passed on. And after all we had been through, it just broke my heart to see my wife in that situation, to know that we're never going to have that happy ending, potentially. We're never going to be able to have a son of our own to raise and to do things with and to experience that and to do all the things that I know my dad wished he had the time to do with me and be able to kind of correct some of the things that, you know, I endured as a child and to be able to not pay that forward and, and to change that whole cycle. Um, he was when he was born, we heard nothing. Absolutely dead silence. When you talk about your babies being born, your kids being born, you hear the crying, you know, you hear the, all the stuff. It was as silent as it can be like that was it. And then all of a sudden I heard the doctor say he's got a little button nose and they bring him into the next room. Um, at that point, they my wife was 
getting sewn up and getting looked at and attended to. And they asked if I wanted to see him. And part of me didn't want to go. Um, part of me felt guilty because she had gone through everything. She had gone through injections. And if you've ever been through IVF, it's a lot of injections and it's a lot of pain and it's a lot of a, a lot, very long process for IVF. And it's very hard for couples. And she had wanted to be a mom more than anything in the whole world. And that's one of the reasons why I married her, because I knew she would be an excellent mom. She would be somebody who would be nurturing and caring. Um, she had a wonderful mom herself. And I just knew that that would carry over. So I contemplated for a few minutes and she just said, go, go see him, make sure he's OK. And I walked into a room full of doctors that were surrounding him like a pit crew at NASCAR, like just all around him. So tiny, I could barely really see him. And they had a doctor that was just literally hand pumping one breath at a time into him as he's as he's in there. Um, my wife wasn't able to see him because he was in the next room. They kind of whisked him away. And then we went down to the you know, we went down to the NICU area and I attended to my wife. And at that point, for most moms that are in the NICU, they they could go anywhere from 24 to 48 hours or more before they get to see their child. And dads in these situations are ironically the, the ones that see them the most. So having to step up in that situation, never being a dad myself, I went down to the NICU. Um, the staff there was wonderful, like the doctors and especially the nurses, they were wonderful. But I got to see a little bit of a tour before he got down there. I got to see other people and kind of get a feel for it. But then I walked around the corner and just saw like everything, wires, monitors, oxygen, these bright lights, you know, for the babies because they have jaundice and all these other things. And it just looked like wires going into his body all over, down into his chest, into his head, into his feet. I mean, he was so small. He was one pound, four ounces, and he was just over 10 inches long. So I could literally put my whole hand over his entire body if I wanted to, and you wouldn't be able to see him. Um, it was difficult because I had to take it all in. I had to be the first point man with all the information. And then I had to communicate that to my wife and I had to really practice that all the way up as I'm getting the information to go to my wife and try to communicate with her what was going on. But I had to really have a poker face because I didn't want to walk in and have her see this person that's in shock uh, that has this somber look on his face. So I practiced how I looked in the elevator, in the mirror, and I walked in and tried to stay as positive as I can and give her as much information as I can. Um, and then eventually we were able to get her the next day down to the NICU. And um, it was hard for her because she didn't feel like a mom. She wasn't able to touch him. She had all these monitors and there's all these other babies and the monitors going off and the alarms. And it's just not how you imagine your life as a dad and as a mom and dad starting. It's just, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. It just, just wasn't how. Um, and we went through that whole process. And, um, you know, after about a, a week, we were able to finally hold him um, on our chest. And there's this thing they call kangaroo care. So, you don't hold your kid like you normally would when you pick them up in your arms and you straddle them and they're just right on your chest and it's skin to skin and it's great for them. But there's wires and there's monitors and there's breathing tubes and this little baby is on your chest and 
you got everything going off and you're trying to be as relaxed as you can so that they don't feel that whole angst and anguish and everything. And it was the first time for the both of us that we felt like parents that first time. And I've talked with a lot of parents and a lot of parents kind of feel like one of two thought processes, either get really involved and be 110% in and all of that, or be distant and not be interactive because they feel that if something happens, it won't hurt as much if I'm not as invested. And then there's the other train of thought of, I need to be fully invested because I'll feel guilty if something does happen and I didn't do everything I could have possibly done. So I think there's nothing wrong for any person that does that. It, it, you're in an irrational situation that nobody can t tell you about and nobody understands unless you've actually had somebody in your life. None of the books talk about that stuff that you know we all read and everything. Yeah. It was it was difficult because I'm experiencing this thing for the first time. And the hardest part for me was the fact how useless I felt in my life. It was I had been in combat, I'd been to war, I had seen all kinds of things, and I couldn't protect my wife or son. I couldn't do anything for them. I could not tell the doctors to hook up everything to me that's that's going to them and to take the pain away and to be the person that takes all that off. And that's what we want to do as men. It's in, it's in our inherent DNA. We want to protect our kids and our wives and anything we can, we will do within our capacity. And there it's the one place that in the very beginning, there's nothing you can do except be present. And even then it's, it's hard to watch that. So, um, you know, I, we, we spent a long time there and I'll kind of stop there in case you guys want to, you know, ask any questions. And certainly there's a lot more to the story, but that's kind of the, the first initial experience with that. And those first couple of days, what it was like for us as, as new parents. Yeah. That's just it's, uh, you talking about feeling helpless. I mean, I can only imagine, it, you know, that's just crushing at that point. And and like you said, that, how do you prepare for that, right? No one ever talks about, oh, your baby's going to be a preemie baby, right? Um, just, I mean, how how long did it take you? Were, were you ever just stunned and like needed a day or something? Or were you were you able to kind of just like power through? And, and also, was there kind of like kind of a de facto support group from all the other parents on the, on the NICU that you guys kind of, you know, were each other's you know, support? Or was it kind of just you're a lone wolf? No, it, I mean, you are very much a lone wolf. Uh, and that's kind of why I started a lot of what I've been doing that, you know, we'll certainly talk about. Because one, it's either HIPAA, a lot of hospitals won't even allow you to talk to other parents that are literally telling you it's okay to come over and check in. Um, and then you have COVID. So we weren't there during COVID, but a lot of families were. So you're very secluded. You're very alone. You don't know what to, to do. The support groups that are in place, if you're lucky, your hospital has a local charity or NICU um, support, a Ronald McDonald house, maybe that's there. But overall, like there's nothing that tells you, you know, there's nobody to come to and talk to about that unless you know somebody that had a baby that was in the NICU or had, had that experience that you could call up. Um, and it's very difficult because especially in the early phases, if you have a very premature child or if your child is very sick, um, you know, 60% of kids in the NICU aren't preemies. I think a lot of people don't know that. And a lot of them have other issues, heart issues, um, diseases, things like that. But when you're in there, there's there's really not a lot of support system for you. So um, 
you kind of just have to be on your own and you're kind of looking for answers. You're looking on Google, you're looking in Facebook. And sometimes those places can be real difficult places because you're reading the good, the bad and, and the ugly. So, you know, there's the highs and lows of people sharing. I had a child that was like that and they passed away. And then there's another person that says everything worked out great. And you're trying to be motivated in that situation and say, well, that's going to be us. And it's hard to find that. And um, for me, I was able to compartmentalize a lot more and I started to find ways that I could impact. Um, I was more of the point person, allowing my wife to be more interactive with him, um, to hold him more, to just focus on that. I was the one the doctors would come to in rounds. I was the one being the point person. And what about this? What about that? Are we doing this? What are we doing that? Why are we doing this? And I think it allowed me to give back a little bit more and take a little bit ownership of the situation and have a little more control in that. And then being able to be involved with the care. Um, and that's something I would certainly encourage any any parent in general, but especially their uh, dads and moms to be involved, everything, the care, reading to them, singing to them. You know, there's things that you can do to impact them. And you could even watch the monitors and just see the impact of your voice. There'd be times I would read a, a history book I'd bring in there, the, like the War of 1812 I'm reading and my kids hearing about this stuff just because my voice is, is comforting to him and I can watch the monitors go up and it's like, okay, I will talk until I'm hoarse, until I don't have any breath and you keep your hands on them as much as you can and comfort them and and that's what you can do. And, and there are days you got to look at your spouse and just say, I need you to be you know, the, the, the strong person today. I'm having a, a real bad day. And for me, it was few and far between, but there were those days where I just said, let me be with him. And can you take, you know, control of rounds and do, deal with the other stuff? And, you know, when those days happened, my wife stepped up and was able to do that. And I think that's a big piece is just being able to communicate with each other um, what's going on uh, and not go into that thousand meter stare uh, where you you feel alone and and you're, now your partner feels alone too because you're dealing with your grief in a different way and what you're going through and you're not talking to each other and um, that's hard for them because they're they're feeling very alone too. Right. So how long were you in the NICU before you were able to finally bring your son home? Uh, 135 days. So we were there. He was he was uh, born May 25th. He was due September 5th and we came home October 5th. Wow. So um, we were there. We came home on um, oxygen, uh, monitors, G-tube, feeding tube, cranial helmets, um, medications, all that that we had to learn. And then, uh, you know, we were we were there at, at home for a while. And um, a lot of the, the, his journey before he came home, most people didn't know he was born. Um, we actually didn't tell a lot of friends and family because one of the hard things that you have to deal with is when you announce that to the world and you tell people that you have a baby that's sick or it's in the hospital, you have the highs and lows of everybody you know and their mother reaching out to you. And imagine having to relive the highs, but also having to relive with every conversation, the lows, when they have a bad day, when you're not sure if they're going to make it to the next hour and you got 50 people texting you. So one thing I always tell parents is try to find a point person, uh, a friend, a sister, brother, have them be the information flow. Tell everybody, contact them and just give them the information. This way it's just limits the need for that back and forth. 
and hopefully people understand that you just you just need to be there and, and to be able to relive that over and over again. It's hard, you know, and, um, you know, there's a lot of ups and downs in the NICU. There are a lot of days where you walk in and everything's great. You will go out to lunch, come back from the cafeteria. And now there's five more monitors and five more devices in the room and you can barely move. And then that changes. And then some of those get out there. So it's a, it's a marathon of being in there and emotionally it wears you down. It's like running, it's like running a 10, 10 or 10 miler with a full 45 or 50 pound ruck on with all your equipment, like back to back. It just, it wears you out so much and you have to figure out how to take care of yourself mentally. And you got to find those little things that you could do to get you through each and every day. And one, you know, one step at a time. Um, but there's, there's some really dark days that were in there um, and days that I, I look at and I always want to re remember because it puts everything in perspective. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That makes sense. Um, yeah. So Adam, how long uh, was your son's breathing tube in place? So the breathing tube in place was pretty much throughout the entire time he was there. So he transitioned okay. from this thing called an oscillator, which to be honest with you, if you looked at it, um, it's the oldest thing I've ever seen. It looks like old military equipment. Swear to God, it looks like a World War II. Um, and it really just vibrates and keeps their lungs open. Um, but it can do a lot of damage too long. So you're constantly adjusting back and forth to ventilators, oscillators, CPAP machines, low flow air. Then you get to a certain point, you have to hit it, you know, these, these metrics and then, okay, you're good to move on. And then, you know, you hope that you, you don't have to go back, but there's sometimes two steps forward, two steps back. Um, that happens throughout. So when we went home, it was low flow oxygen for the most part um, that we kept inside of his nose that just helped him throughout the night and during the day. And then eventually you kind of graduate off of that and you don't need it. But it's it's a lot to pack up when you're going to your appointments and you got oxygen tanks and all these things like that. And again, you're in that fight or flight mode. So I think once you get to that point where you're doing it, you and your spouse kind of get into a rhythm and it's almost like for us, we felt like we opt, we were better coupled together having gone through that adversity and doing it because we just became more in sync and we had a primary focus, not each other and the bullshit of the world and jobs and everything else. It was keep this little boy alive, um, do everything necessary to keep him alive and everything else is secondary, whether it's sleep, whether it's sanity, whether it's food, you kind of put that aside and you get to a point where you almost rely on it and you kind of look back, you're like, I, I kind of need a little more adversity in my life because I don't know how to do that anymore and, and just have a normal day. You're kind of always looking for that. And it takes a while to get through that. Yeah. And it really hammers home. I can't even imagine if you weren't around what your wife would have done. Uh, you know, when you talk about, oh, you don't need a dad, no big deal. I mean, you absolutely were needed in that situation. I, I don't, I am convinced that your child would not have done as well, you know, had you not been there to take care of him. So I'm, I'm glad that he had you and I'm, you know, I'm glad you had that. Um, what, what was it like? When did you finally have a moment where you could breathe and where you thought, all right, I'm going to start having a normal day. How long did it take before you could actually say I had a normal day today? I'd say probably about two years in, um, so we actually at um, 18 months, um, a lot of you probably have heard about RSV. That's probably been in the news a lot more. Well, a lot of people haven't heard about that. But if you're a, a preemie family or NICU family, you know all about that. Uh, there's this thing called the synergist shot, 
it's a very expensive shot. Um, it's not like get a COVID shot, which is whatever they charge. Um, we got approved for it this first year, and they typically give that to preemies. But the second year, they rejected it. Our pediatrician fought it. But by the time he fought it and got it approved, he got RSV. And he went to the hospital for two weeks during Thanksgiving uh, at about 18 months old. So we had to deal with him being in the hospital. And that was almost as bad as being in the NICU because now he was able to move around more. He was understood who we were. He was reaching for us. And when you have a child that's covered in wires and breathing stuff and reaching for you and wanting you to be there and you can't be there 24 seven with them, they didn't have a room for us to sleep in with him. So you spent all that time. The staffing was way less amount. I mean, he was throwing himself into metal bars because they had him in this incubator. It was not an incubator. It's literally just an old style metal bars because he would throw himself and he would get all kinds of welts on, on his head. And they had to put seizure pads in there to block him because as soon as we would come in, he would, you know, he'd be happy. And as soon as we try to leave or when he would go to sleep, he'd wake back up and start going crazy <sighs> and they couldn't give him sedatives or anything. At least that's, that's what they told us. We found out like a year later, they most certainly could have given him sedatives to help him out. But the doctor there was just not what I would say a quality doctor. Um, I may have cussed them yeah. out a half a dozen times. And yeah, it, it definitely allowed. And then I, as a result of that, and just kind of seeing the difference between the NICU and the PICU and the PICU is more of a pediatric. So typically when kids has, hit a certain age, um, one, two years old, they're in the PICU when they get sick. So the staffing levels and the ratio levels of what you get is a lot different. So when you're used to seeing a one-to-one -one nurse ratio, or you're used to seeing people all over, and then you're having to find doctors and search for them, uh, not a good feeling to be able to do that. And I think that was at, at that point where a two years old is when we started to get a little bit better as we started to graduate from not having a G-tube for a feeding tube, hitting other milestones, you started to worry less, you know, as, as seasons went on, when they would get sick, we would have, you know, breathing machines and things like that to keep them from having to go back to the hospital. So typically whenever it hit that kind of a year, like, you know, we're cold and flu season, we basically were secluded. We were doing, you know, social distancing two years before everybody else in the world was doing it. So we've really done almost a five-year pandemic to a degree with our son yeah. being secluded. So it's been a, a wild ride. I think Justin Dude, it sounds like it. Jeez. So I guess my question would be, um, like I, I'm going through the first year and a half right now with my son, he's 14 months and he's just starting to hit some milestones. So I can't even imagine like being in your shoes. That would not only be torture for that, the child, it sounds like you had with your son, but it sounds like it was torturous for you and your wife. Um, so I'm sorry you went through that first and foremost, but secondly, I guess my question is, is like, did that take away from like some of the bigger milestones or did it add to them? And like, when did your son's milestones like walking and things like that actually get to happen due to, you know, what was going on? That's a good, a good question. Some of the milestones happened, I think just normally. And I think for me being a first time parent and my wife, obviously we didn't have nothing to compare it to. So I think the first year it was our pediatrician, our parents telling us you're doing a great job. This is normal. A lot of reassurance because you have nothing to compare it to, no data, you know, to look at. Um, the, we were in a birth to three program. A lot of states or um, cities have similar programs with babies that are born. 
premature or with developmental issues, whether it's cerebral palsy, a lot of things. So they have a, a way to kind of follow up. We had somebody that would come would work with him each week uh, up until he got three to work on that. I think the big frustrating part, and I kind of tell parents is that every kid is different and to just not compare because at the end of the day, they eventually get there at some point and it's on their own time. And the more you worry about comparing your kid to your brother or sister, or your friend on Facebook who did this and that and the other thing, you also don't realize like how much when you look at social media and what people put out there is is true and all the other struggles they go with. Case in point, the couple across from us, uh, they were a very nice couple. We we got to kind of know them from kind of giving them the wink and the nod and almost like it was like secret ops to, you know, share in their experiences. We could tell when they had a good day and give a thumbs up. Um, but we they were they had a 25 week girl and she went home way ahead of schedule from our son. And we looked at it and was like, you know, what's going on with him? He's going through all these. He had a lot more stuff going on. And we just felt like, man, it, it's it sucks that we have to go through all that and they get to go home soon. A year later, I ran into them at his checkup. Come to find out that she had a lot of developmental issues due to brain bleeds and other problems weren't respiratory related. So while our son had respiratory issues, they had cognitive motor skills, wasn't able to even roll over at that point. There's a lot of things that they developed. So I always tell people, you never know what other parents are going through because a lot of parents will get envious. They'll get um, jealous. They'll just, they'll go into this mode where they're like, you know, why can't it be me? I do everything right. Um, I did all the vitamins. I said all the prayers. I, did everything I was supposed to do, but everybody's journey is different. And, um, you know, my son now, like we work on a lot of things, but the dude puts together like 300 piece puzzles by himself and has a, and has a, a crazy vocabulary. But if I put a big wheels in front of him and has him to drive it around, he'd crash it. Meanwhile, his cousin who doesn't really talk much is three years old, can drive that thing around like it's NASCAR and is up and down everywhere, you know? So every kid, it's just, it's so completely different and they're going to gravitate to one thing or the other. And that's great. And it's our job as dads to nurture that, um, to provide them more and more exposure to different things to see what they do and don't enjoy. And I think that's an important part of that. It's just understanding that everyone's different. And once you get into that mode, um, I think it was easier for me than my wife, then it's a lot easier to celebrate the milestones. And that's kind of one of the reasons I, I wrote the first book was to really celebrate the milestones because they are very unique. They are something that you grow to appreciate more. And when you're a parent that has dealt with so much in the beginning, everything seems so much sweeter. You know, you, people that take things for granted and then you look at your kid and you just look at them and you're in awe, like it's the greatest miracle in the world because you knew what they had to get through to get there and what you had to go through. And it feels so much sweeter. So sometimes people take advantage of things and, yeah, that kind of will irritate me. Well, they'll take advantage of something, but they don't know any better, you know, and, and God bless them that they didn't have to go through that. And I'm not going to hold that against them. But at the same time, I'm, I'm very proud of where he's come and, and what we've been able to do so far. That's Adam, so do you get any questions kind of over and over that are annoying? Like that just you're like, why do people ask this? Like, I just <laughs> I don't want to talk about this anymore. Like, has that come up with you know, what you're dealing with? Not really. I think a lot of people really don't understand about prematurity in general. I think the general 
idea of the public is it's a baby that's born a little bit lighter, you know, three pounds, four pounds, you know, we kind of think that maybe a few weeks early. And I think that we all go into that same thing of, I, I didn't know what it was like until it happened to me. So I think for me, it's always about educating people about what that can be and also giving them hope and saying, you know what? I talk with parents all the time. There's a parent that just had a 24 weeker, a 23 weeker um, that overcame so much. It's it's about sharing the, the good stories too. And I don't think I really get tired of, of it. I think it's just more, the more I talk about it, the more I expose people, the more I um, help educate them on, on what's going on and, and share their stories and my story. Hopefully it helps somebody else that's sitting in that same situation that's in the NICU like I was five years ago looking for answers. And maybe they come across a podcast like this and, you know, they see it and they say, there's an opportunity for us to have a happy ending. There's a dad that went through this and a mom that went through this. And yeah, it's not the exact same thing, but there's an opportunity for us to have a, a positive ending. And I think you need hope in the NICU and when you're dealing with that. And sometimes that's few and far between. And you lose a lot of hope sometimes while you're in there and you got to find other ways to find hope, whether it's faith, whether it's your family, whatever it may be, you've got to find, you know, that hope in there and continue to be positive as much as you can. Yeah. Cause despair is just not an option. No. Um, so how long then after this, I know, I know that your wife needed life-saving surgery. So how long between we're home, we feel like we've kind of turned the corner and we're going to be a happy family now to that news hitting. So about two years ago, uh, two and a half years ago, the news hit that my wife had her, her kidneys started to decrease in function. So, um, and this, she was at 36 years old when you talk about the decrease in function. So prior to him being born, she was at about 50% function at that point. It dropped down to 10%, 15% um, within two years of him being born. So we don't know entirely if it's just because of that. I mean, one has to think there's a correlation, but we had to do a lot of soul searching. We had to reach out to family and friends. Uh, we were on the donor list. Um, I got tested. Um, people, Other people got tested around me. Um, but there's a lot of things that you find out there too about the donor program. Like you don't realize that I don't have to be a perfect match for somebody, that there are programs out there that help match you up with somebody else that needs a needs a kidney as well so if your wife has a kidney issue and my wife has a kidney issue and i'm a better match for her and you're a better match for my wife we basically do an agreement and say okay i'm going to give mine to your wife you're going to give it to your to, to mine and they're going to get the life-saving kidney that transport they need so it's two birds at one stone being able to help help people so a lot of times people don't realize that and there's medications and things like that. They've come such a long way. And at the same time, it's also, you know, what happens with you when you give that? Oh, I think a lot of people get worried about that. And one of the things you find out is that, well, once you give a kidney or once you give an organ, you get bumped up on the national list as priority number one. Since you're a donor, God forbid something happens to you, get a car accident, something happens. Well, you're already on that list. So you move ahead because you gave that you know, life-saving kidney to somebody else. So I think there's a lot of things where we, we try to educate people about that too. But yeah, she, um, we had a, a friend of hers, a coworker who herself um, had battled breast cancer, uh, overcame that and still decided to give a kidney to my wife because she was such a great match. 
and we just celebrated uh, two years of her getting the kidneys. So that was another deal with COVID, having to be there in the hospital, coming out of that, and then having to be the caretaker for her for many months, uh, take care of my son, taking care of her. You know, that became a process in itself. And it, again, we went into the fight or flight mode, which yeah. for me, I felt like, you know, home sweet home. Like that's kind of where I operate best <laughs> you're, you're conditioned at that point. I was conditioned. <laughs> Military had done this for me. So that I had a yeah. benefit on that. And uh, so we, we got through that. And then she got to a point where she started feeling better. And it's good because now she can be more involved. She can be a mom. But it just felt like when that all happened, I'm like, really? I, I kind of looked at God. I was like, we went through IVF loss. We went through the worst possible experience in the NICU back in the hospital. And then she needs a kidney. And I kept thinking like, am I going to lose them both? Am I going to lose her? And it was like so many times of back and forth of I'm going to lose my wife. I'm going to lose my son. And I just felt like for a while that like the world really felt like it was picking on me for a bit. And I was just like, really, what did I do? You know, I kind of looked at God. I was like, I'm a really good person, I think. Um, but at the end of the day, these things happen and you have to be able to just deal with the adversity and find ways to get through it and try to be as positive as you can. I would have been creeping in that coworker's window and like offering her water and being like, put that cigarette down. Hey, don't, no, don't drink that bourbon. You don't need that. I told her, I was like, anything you need, bury a dead body. I don't care. I got a team of guys that owe me a favor. We're good. It's, it doesn't matter. That goes on. And you know, it's, it's, I'm lucky to have her in my life. My dad even offered to give his kidney up and he's in his, you know, sixties. And uh, you know, just a lot of people step up and you find out that a lot of people in your life, going through those experiences, whether it's what we went through with the kidney transplant or my son, it's the most unexpected people that step up in your life and really become your go-to people. And it's, it's great to find those people and, you know, to, to just have that relationship be built upon that. And, you know, you can count on them and then count on you. And um, I've just had a lot of great friendships come out of it. And I've made a lot of good friends out of just kind of talking about it and, and meeting different people. That's cool, man. Uh, so I was going to actually kind of ask on that is now when you got the news with your wife, did you have now that you're not like in the NICU and you can kind of be somewhat back in your normal life? Did you have more of a support structure at this point where it, devastating news, of course, but, you know, you're kind of alluding to like your dad and, and these other people stepping up, but not just from the donor perspective, but kind of just for you, you know, as as a dad wrestling with all these things. Um, To a degree, I actually felt like, um, you know, for a while we had to be alone. It was just the two of us, like a lot of people were like, okay, we'll, we'll step up and help you out with your son, with the medical stuff and be there. But at the end of the day, like not all of them were really there as much as they, they were like to be. Um, so for a while, it's just to her and I really getting through it all together. And that to kind of be our foundation of our marriage. It's like the two of us, the three of us against the world. And, you know, we had family step up, but I wouldn't say like the support system was overly amazing in every aspect of it. And I could go do whatever I want. Um, but people stepped up at the right times that we needed them to step up and um, offered them when we needed to needed that relief or just needed a little bit of assistance. I think it's hard for a lot of people when you have a medically fragile child to step up and be confident because now there's all these wires and things and I'm his dad and I get a little bit freaked out. I can't imagine coming in and having to deal with that and you want to, but it, it's a little bit hard. It's a lot of families yeah. that are out there they don't get that relief because unless they have a family member that's really can pick this up or is in the medical industry, 
they don't really get a lot of relief. So there's a lot of people that have it far worse than we did. Um, and God bless them for, you know, how they're able to get through it every day and deal with that. But you just find ways to, to deal what we need to deal with and compartmentalize where you need to compartmentalize and eventually talk with people and whether it's friends or get, you know, therapy, talk with somebody about it just to get it off your chest. Um, I think one of the big things is that a lot of couples don't talk about things with each other when it comes to that because they don't want to be the burden on the other one. And we as men are probably the biggest guilty people of all. So we will not put a burden on our family. We will not talk about our problems. We will push it down. We'll drink a glass of whiskey or whatever and forget about it. And then eventually comes back up. So one thing I, I learned is just really being able to be authentic with my wife about what I was feeling, even if it was a really shitty thought of, I feel like we're going to lose him or I feel like I'm being a bad dad or is it bad that I think this? And I think they're often thinking the same thing. They're afraid to say it too. And it's good to be able to get that off your chest. And that's kind of some of the things that I do is provide an outlet where people can say, I thought that too, you know, or we went through that same thing too. And they don't feel alone and they don't feel weird because they felt like that or a bad parent, because there's, there's a lot of people out there that are really bad parents, but we're all just dealing with that, trying to make the best of a hard situation. And I think we're very hard on ourselves sometimes. Uh, and we don't give our, ourselves enough grace to be able to um, deal with those situations and realize we're going to make mistakes. There's going to be rough days and that's okay too. Yeah, definitely. Um, we, you know, and this is something we've kind of hit on a lot too, is for some reason today in our society too, it's like men isolate so much. And uh, I think it was Dustin, you shared the stat that like 70% of men polled or something say that they don't really have like a close friend. And that's yeah. just like really alarming because th that's something we've been trying to be very intentional about, like in our discussions and, and with this podcast and is you need other guys in your life too, in those moments of like, man, I'm just like, I'm lost, I'm scared, whatever. Cause you don't want to, like you said, you don't want to dump everything on your family. You've got to go to yep. sound people who can kind of be a, a sounding board for you and either poke you in the chest or give you that hug you need, you know? Um, so I, I'm glad you, you brought, hit that too, uh, because especially in extreme circumstances, you kind of breaking the ice about, I'm really scared about this kind of lets your wife also kind of have that letdown too. Um, instead of just bottling it all up. But I guess what I'd like to ask next is um, going from all this, how long was it between that and you writing the first book and deciding that, you know, hey, I'm going to I'm going to do something about this now to, to try and make a difference for for other parents in this situation. So I think was I was simultaneous. It, well, I think I was probably about two and a half years in three years in with him and kind of COVID kicked off. And so you're kind of stuck with your own thoughts you're sitting at home and looking for projects and everything to kind of do and i kind of ran through a ton of the um ton of the different things that you could do at home um so i actually created uh, the social media account premium adventures on instagram now mind you i am not an instagram person uh i don't know what influencing is or any of that stuff like that uh, i tend to kind of despise social media for the most part but i i found a, a oddly in a, a really good circle of people in that in that group and at first it was just sharing insight from a dad, funny things that I would kind of think about from my perspective. And then people really started to love it because they started to see, uh, and this is the website on here. So I'll kind of talk a little about that too. Um, they started to see just how funny it was and that they also thought the same things at different parts in their journey. So as I was chronicling our journey, what we were going through, 
I was creating different things for them to see. And people were just reaching out to me and, and saying, this is exactly how we feel. We're going through the same thing and kind of creating a network of people to share in each other's adventures together. Uh, a place where you could come in, you could laugh, you could be your unique self and understand that there's a parent out there that understands the same things that you've been going through. So I worked on the first book, which you have on the screen, Our Premium Adventure. Um, a lot of that came from the feedback and things I would create on social media, the funny things that I thought was just unique. And it's really a celebration of my son, but the milestones. It's a it's a book about the wins, um, finding the wins in everything. Because when you're in the NICU, sometimes it could be a month and a half before you have your first bath. Um, you don't get to wear your first outfit for two or three months sometimes because you get all these wires and things like that. And these parents that are in there are experiencing that in a different way than anybody else in the world. Um, the first time they get to you know, take a bottle could be a month or two, three months, four months. Some kids can't take any bottles really. Um, so they have G-tubes like my son to, to get this stuff. So I looked at it and said, I want to create a book that has a variety of different things in it to celebrate those things. So a parent like me could say, there was a, a mom and a dad that had a 25 weeker that was born so small and they had a happy ending and they wrote this book. And it's to cheer the parents up. The book is so much for the parents that it, it than it is for the children because you're reading it and you're getting teared up while you're in the isolate to your kid because you just experienced that milestone. Or you have something now to look forward to because you just saw that and you're like, next week, that's going to be us. And you count down that stuff. And then when you get home, you reread it to your little one. And when they get older, it's fun. It's funny. And your kid can look at it and say, this is what I went through. And this is your unique adventure. And this is what we went through. And it's not scary for them. And I think it's an ability for you to take back all the negative, all the all the bad days and celebrate the good days. And I think that's what we don't do enough is we, we dwell on the, the hard days, the worst days, and we don't celebrate the good things. And that's really the first book was about celebrating those good days and being able to share in that and be able to have somebody pick it up and say, man, somebody sees me. And there wasn't anything out there at that point when I wrote the book. Um, there were books about like preemies and from a medical perspective and stuff like that, but there was nothing out there and nothing to cheer them up. And I kind of wanted to do that. And um, it took a lot of hard work and a lot of research to figure out how to do this book and how to push it and finding illustrators and doing all that. But it was a awesome project. And to be able to do that and the whole book has little things that are unique. There's the shirt that I have on right now is a shirt we wore in the NICU. It's in the book. Um, the nurses and doctors that were like family are illustrated in the book. Um, there's little things with my son, the little blue guy right here. You'll see he's in every single page of the book. He's on the front cover of the book. And these are octopuses that they give kids in, the, in that are preemies because it mimics the umbilical cord and it comforts them. And it, it, that's something you don't find out till you become a parent. So it was about being able to share those little details that somebody, you know, can say, you know, man, this is exactly what our, our, our life is right now. And, and but we have something to look forward to and getting to the end. And, and I think it gives them a little more hope than maybe I had when I first encountered it. And that's kind of where that first book started. Adam, did that's you so have cool, access man. to books or resources when you were in the NICU? Was there like a little library for you? So there was, there was, I mean, I would bring things in. My mother-in-law would bring books all the time. We would constantly read, um, you know, and again, there's so many great stories and 
so many books out there. I'm sure that you guys have a ton. You love reading to your kids and everything, but nothing that had anything that was like what we went through in that experience. And I kind of said, you know, it would be nice to be able to have something like that, something that just is exactly what we're going through, something that's we can appreciate. Um, but yeah, they had a library in a lot of places now and a lot of organizations. Um, a lot of people I, I find out about, they do a lot of um, charity work. They give they give to different families. They create their own NICU library. They get donations. Um, they start their own nonprofits and help out in their local areas. Because we talked about earlier, not every area has a March of Dimes that is available or a Ronald McDonald house. You might be living in you know, an area of the country where it's not a lot of people up there. So sometimes it's just families that been through it, give back and create something special. And that's what I try to also do as well is kind of uplift those stories as well of, of people that are doing amazing things in honor of their kids and honor their story, whether they had a, a kid that made it through or, or, or they had loss and they want to give back. There's a lot of people that do that and they experience the, the heavy loss of, um, being in the NICU and they, and they do amazing things in their children's honor and they reach so many different lives. And it's, it's amazing to see what parents do, even when they go through the most ad adverse situation, they come out on the other side and say, how can I help somebody else? And I think that just, it's amazing. We don't hear enough of those stories out there. And I think it's, it's all feel good stuff. And that's why I love with it. It's, it's being on it on my social media is all babies and, and dogs. That's pretty much it. Like, you know, you look <laughs> at it, it's all babies and dogs uh, nobody, you know, no, uh, no models in my DMS or anything like that. If they are models they're models for like, you know, baby attire or something like that. So, yeah. So, so pulling up a lot the, of the stuff the here. Yeah. I, you just, I like your memes a lot, man. Sweep the <laughs> leg across my feet. <laughs> yeah. So here, we'll pull this one up here. When your baby takes the first steps, but you're not ready for them to grow up. Sweep the leg. So, and, yeah, a lot of it too is as they get older, you know, just generalized stuff for all parents. But yeah, I, it's a lot of different things we create. And um, I had one today where it was a, it was a, a reel with uh, Captain America. It was that one right there. And uh, a lot of the nurses loved it because it's it's it, it's talks about like what it's like when they meet him years later and they're you know watching them while they sleep all the time. And he's like, that's not too weird. I don't, I don't think I have uh, sound enabled with sharing. So uh, I think, yeah, in the people... lower, the lower. Corner yeah, I don't know there. if it's going to come through my mic, though. Or oh, whatever, got it. So I guess we'll, we'll give it a shot here. Met you. I mean, I watched you while you were sleeping. It's an honor to meet you officially. I sort of met you. I mean, I watched you while you were sleeping. Yeah. Oh, and a lot of kids go back to the NICU year, years later and they keep in contact with their nurses and doctors and. You know, it's, it's just a lot of things to create kind of a, an outlet for families to go, you know, be able to laugh a little because you need a little bit of a cheer in the NICU when you're going through all that stuff. Yeah, man. I'll tell you what, uh, I just saw a meme that had Bluey and I am the biggest fan of that show. My son watches it every day and it's I, so funny. The dad is hilarious. As an adult, I love that show. And I actually just, uh, my wife and I are taking our kids somewhere uh, to the beach soon and she got me this um, like nice button down, like Hawaiian shirt, but it's got bluey all over it. And like the dad's doing the dance and it's, it's legit. So that that's awesome. I love that. I, I love that show too. And I got into it recently. And again, I think it's more for me. I'm actually asking my son, do you want to watch bluey? 
um, because I think it's relatable. Like it's, it's goes to the parents. It also makes it hard for us dads to keep up with him because now when my son sees it, he wants to do all of it. Like heavy, the episode with uh, the, the light feather, heavy and light. Yeah. He'll do yeah. like typical. He's crabs, such a good actor. Like the dad that. is. Exactly. And it's like, man, I can't live up to this dog. Like, are you kidding me? But I, I think it's, it's, it's important to have those, those positive examples and things like that for kids. And uh, a lot of good shows like that. Unfortunately, there's not as many good shows as there used to be now. So that's, that's the hard part about raising kids nowadays is you really have to be cognizant of everything that they're watching, they're taking in and also what you're saying around them. Cause I'm at that phase right now where he is repeating everything. So you know, dealing with my vocabulary being limited in a lot of four-letter words, I've really had to step up my game. And like, not Daddy, what did you say? I said it. truck. I said truck. That's what yeah, exactly. Of the, He's like, no, you didn't. The bad you things the like, army no, teaches I didn't. you. I didn't. the bad things the army teaches you that you have to unlearn as a parent pretty quickly. <laughs> it's hard. Um, it's hard, man. <laughs> very. Yeah. So um, we've heard your story now. I, I, I gave you a few kind of questions I wanted to get through. And then I, I want to just go, you, you had a lot of things that you suggested to we talk about. So I just want to open it up after those. But the first one was, what was the hardest part of being a preemie NICU dad? I think the hardest part being a preemie NICU dad was just really the fact is the lack of support for men um, in the NICU and out of the NICU. And that's kind of one thing that I've been working on recently with a lot of dads and using kind of social media to reach out to them and and also provide a lot of content for them to kind of uplift them and like you guys are heroes too and you guys are an important piece and encourage them to be more involved in everything and there's just not a lot out there you know it, dads are kind of in the background and i think they do that now whether you're a preemie dad or not or NICU dad sometimes we get pushed to the background and it's you know mom's the point person for meeting you know parent teacher conferences or anything else like that and I think it's just one of those things. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shame to have that. And so for me, I really wanted to be more involved. Um, I've had dads that have reached out and they've talked about how they created their own small group of men, you know, out in their NICU where they go out for beers once a week now, even after the NICU. And they talk about sports or they talk about whatever. And um, there's a lot of things that you deal with because when you're dealing with all that, you're also dealing with your relationship. You're dealing with work. You're dealing with the balance of that, the guilt of having to go back and forth to the NICU. Most dads are working full time while they're having to go back and forth there. So there's a lot of things you have to juggle. And then if you have multiple kids, you have to do all that. So how do you find that time? And um, I think there's just not a lot of support systems out there for them. And even the organizations that are out there, the major ones, they're very lackluster in it, you know, and the ones that you find out there, you kind of. They got a once a month club, maybe once every two months. And dads were busy. You know, if we miss that once a month, you know, we don't get to talk to somebody who's been through it for another month or two. And, you know, there are other dads that are out there that I've met. Uh, one of my friends, Alex, he's a, he's got a social media account. He works in Texas. He's a, he's a dad to a preemie, um, big old burly guy covered in tattoos, big old beard and everything. And he does speaking engagements, talks to parents, advocates for kids um he's trying to get more dads involved and he and i are working together to try to create a network for dads um that's more sustainable where they can come in and just have a place where they can come in with other guys and talk about whatever it didn't have to be the NICU, it didn't have to be anything it could be for sports for an hour but it's a you know with guys that have been through what you're going through understand you and um 
you know, there's not a lot of things as well for um, mental health. Um, I talk with a lot of NICU nurses and doctors. I've done interviews with them. There's not a support system for them either. And they see kids every single day and they experience loss and it hurts them. And there's not mental health for them. They just have to go on and go to the next patient and they have to compartmentalize that. And that weighs a toll on you. So when you think about the lack of resources that are out there, you know, there could be a lot more, but sometimes you have to be the change and you have to do it in small spurts and from a few become many and do those sort of things. And I think there are a lot of dads out there. So hopefully they're encouraged to do that, but, you know, also to be involved, don't be afraid to, to get in there to push mom aside gently and, and hold that kid or change that diaper or tell that doctor he's being a jerk and, you know, get in his face and tell him, you know, I'll meet him in the parking lot if he doesn't give the care that he's deserved for his kid. I mean, maybe not threaten them, but you get to that point. So there's, that's one of the biggest things I saw in there and and it still continues, but hopefully we can change that. Yeah. yeah I like, like how you said, gently move your wife to the side. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You, you can't, you can't throw mama bear out. That's not going to work. No, out. no, no, no. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I just we we all really resonate that I'll speak for the other guys. That's I mean, that's why we started what we're doing right now is we wanted to we just felt like there's nothing out there for dads. It's it's we're like an afterthought almost. So, you know, we got to do our little part to try and change that. And so I just love how you um, took the initiative um, to take all of your experience to pay it forward and hopefully uh, make a lasting impact. So appreciate you being very candid about that, too. I know this is um it was a very tough thing and very personal thing. So for you to just be very uh, open about it is also leading by example, because that's another thing I think that most dads don't do. We, like you said earlier, we stuff it down and just don't talk to anybody. And um, part of making it better is taking action with it. So uh, the next one is a little bit just generalized. If you could only give one piece of dad advice for just all dads in general, what would it be? Beep. It, it's going to sound corny given the, the people I'm with and the name of the podcast, but be present, <laughs> be involved. You know, there's, there's a lot of dads that didn't have great examples or they had dads that had to work. We all grew up with a different situation at home. Um, and that's not an excuse to go ahead and continue those same trends in your own life. You have an opportunity to reinvent yourself, um, reinvent yourself as a dad and change every day and become a better person. And to realize that you're going to make mistakes, you're going to be at fault and you're going to do things that you wish you'd done better. But every day is an opportunity to change, to change that. But be involved. I think that's one of the things my dad, a, a few weeks ago, he and I had a heart to heart and he, he worked a ton of hours and he had to raise kids. But he said, I just watch you with your son. You are involved. You are present. You're taking him on these adventures and memories. And those are the things that kids re remember. They don't remember about the the thing you bought them when they were five or six, they don't. It's for me, it was like my dad doing things with me, uh, you know, doing whatever as a kid, playing basketball with him in the backyard. I don't think about what I got for Christmas. I couldn't tell you what I got, you know, any Christmas really other than He-Man when I was like seven, that was about it. Other than that, I think it's just, you have to be present and involved. And I think that goes to every single dad uh, out there. Don't be the status quo. Don't be what everybody says a dad is a dad can be so many different things. We are Renaissance men. We can be involved. We can be passionate about a ton of things. And we're not just go home, drink a beer, go to bed. And, and that's it. I think that's, 
you know, if you're if you're using that model, um, you're doing your your family a disservice, and and you just really have to, you know, I think when you're just more involved, you get more joy out of it, and uh, when you see your kids having a great time and they're laughing and, and everything, that's the best part. Absolutely, love it, man. Appreciate it. And uh, final final of the kind of canned questions we had for you was, uh, what is the most surprising thing you learned through all of your NICU experience? I think the most surprising thing was just more about how far we've come with babies and just being able to keep these these babies alive and what we we're able to do with science um, and just how many people are actually impacted by it. You know, one in nine people um, in the U.S. alone has a premature child. And then that doesn't even include kids that have other things that are outside, as I talked about. So 60 percent of the NICU is not preemies and everyone kind of thinks the NICU is that. And it's just not that uh, my own niece was born with heart issues. So she was a full term, had a lot of heart issues when she was born. So I became the go to person for my sister when it was talking about the NICU. My niece had twin preemies, so they were in the same NICU. So I think that was just there's a lot of things you don't realize, but it's I'm also amazed just by how far we've come. And every every year, it seems like the viability and the ability to have a quality of life for kids gets earlier and earlier, which is fantastic because it gives more people the ability to have a happy ending, have a second chance or a first chance at being able to be a parent. So I think that's some of the things that surprised me the most. Very cool. All right. Well, I've asked a lot of questions. Um, I'll let the other guys jump in here and we can just kick it around with with really anything. But uh, at, before we do that, just Adam, appreciate uh, you coming on and just being very transparent about your story. Um, and I do want to take a quick second for those watching or listening. Please check out Premi Adventures uh, on Instagram and also uh, premiadventures.com and uh, get involved. And if this uh, is motivating you or uh, you know, you know, someone who's kind of going through this, go educate yourself so that you can actually be helpful to them. So, all right, guys, let's open it up. I'm going to jump in here. Yeah. So Adam, uh, you grew up with a single dad. Um, how did that affect your parenting style? Did it, uh, did you go into this thinking I'm going to do this or that? Because, you know, I just had, I had a single mom, so I had a lot of ideas yeah. about what parenting should be, you know, because my dad wasn't around. So I'm curious if you had anything specific because of that. So for me, I think it was more of a taking the things that I, I knew that were good things and positives and and putting that into my parenting and who I am as a person and also learning from the mistakes as well. And I think being able to identify those and move forward. Uh, you know, my dad had me as I was a cautionary tale. I was 17. He was 17. I was actually born when I was in the Marine Corps you know, boot camp. Um, so my parents were high school sweethearts, you'll say. Um, so he was, by the time he was 38 years old, when it was when I had my son, um, I was already out of the military and it was in a, in a, was deployed at that point in my first deployment. Um, I didn't have my son until I was 38. So I was a little more established. So I knew, kind of knew what I wanted. I, I was, it, I just knew I wanted to be more established because back then for him, it was hard being a single parent, trying to have raised three kids on top of working you're not always able to be present. There's a lot of hardships, a lot of things that you have to do without sometimes because of that. Um, and I knew that I didn't want to be in that same situation. I wanted to have an environment where my my son or my daughter could grow up in and feel it was stable 
that was one thing that I, I lacked quite a bit was stability at times um, growing up. And, and my dad did my his absolute best. But at the end of the day, I think we're all craving that. And when you're in the military, it's not as stable of a life. Sometimes you're kind of moving around. Um, so for me to come back, I, I kind of looked at those things and said, you know, I want to do this and do that. My dad had an unbelievable work ethic, um, honest man. And I think those are the things I took with me. Um, there's a lot of good things that he did. And there's a lot of times where, you know, he would lose his cool. And I identify that. And there's times where I catch myself and say, that's exactly what, you know, my dad would have done. And that's exactly one of the things I want to change um, because I don't want to be that person that yells all the time and uses that as a tool to raise my son. I want to disappoint him when he needs to be. But at the same time, yelling at somebody is not always the answer unless you're a drill sergeant. And then it most certainly is the answer. But I am not that. So I can't treat my family as that either. You don't my give wife your wife say. the half right face. She you know? she tells me she's like, this is not the, this is not the army. You cannot do yeah. that. Like yeah. and I, I would talk with a friend and like sometimes you treat your spouses like, you know, like you would treat your soldiers. And I even give her kind of a knife hand sometimes and I got to catch myself. I, so. say, oh, I, was like, I was like, no, you can't do that. So, I mean, there's things you got to take away from the military that are good and, and there's things that are bad. But, um, yeah, I think those are the kind of things that I just learned from my dad and and looked at and just you kind of mimic the good things that are positives and try to steer clear of the cautionary things that are on there. We all make mistakes. I think if you continue to go on the same route and just do the same things, like you learn nothing from that experience. And I think if we can't learn from each other's mistakes and experiences, then we're just doomed to repeat them. Yeah, that makes nice. a lot of sense. Definitely. Isn't it interesting too how when you hit that point where your your parents are no longer like these superhumans, like they're humans, and and you're like, oh, yeah, and I like I feel empathy now for that, like. I was being a little turd. I did, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's just a weird kind of thing that as you become a parent yourself too, you like the things that used to maybe have, you had some bitterness about or something. It's so easy to just let it go and to forgive and kind of reconnect. Cause it's like, Oh, I get it now. You know? Yep. Um, it's just a weird phenomenon that it's a really cool part of being a dad. I just want to put that out there cause it seemed good timing, but Justin, I'll let you go, man. Sorry. I cut you off. No, no, you good. Uh, so I was actually going to say, you know, one of the things I consistently hear people who have been through, you know, the depths of grief and sorrow and just hell, honestly, um, they say that they, they got something out of the darkness uh, that they have gone through. If there was one thing that you could say that you brought a positive from all of that, you know, obvious from what you said or, you know, your son being here, what would you say that would be that maybe something that, you know, someone else could maybe try to look for. I think, you know, sometimes we, we sit there and we question God's will and we sit there and we go through some of the worst parts of our lives and we sit back and we blame God for everything and we blame them and we say, why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to me? And we have to listen and we have to understand that there are reasons for everything. And there's a way that we can, take the grief and the things that we've been through and to make them be meaningful. And I think for everybody there, you're, you're just trying to always find how you can make that meaningful. And sometimes it hits you immediately. And sometimes it doesn't hit you for years later, but there's an opportunity in everything that you go through and grief and pain and anguish to make something out of it and be something positive in the world. And I think when you're able to find what that is 
and something that you can be passionate about and to, to give back in some capacity a little bit every time that you do that and you help somebody or you make an impact, it replaces that pain that you feel in your heart with something positive and something good. It never fully goes away. But at the end of the day, I think that, you know, you're able to find what that is. And for me, I didn't think that five years ago I would write children's books, let alone about preemies. And I didn't think that I would be talking about them and it'd be such an important part of my life. And it would be something I'd be so passionate about. But that was God's will. And for me, I had to go through all of that hard times and that adversity and everything I went through to get to that point, because I wouldn't have that perspective. I wouldn't have that outlook had I not gone through that. I mean, in hindsight, I would have loved if God could have gave me the cliff notes of that. But at the end of the day, that's not how it works. So once you process all of that and you get through it, and I think the military helped me a lot with processing things a little bit quicker than the average person, uh, grief and, and, and loss and different things like that. Um, you're able to, to kind of see things a little bit more clearly. And I think for most people, it's very hard for them to do that. And you're not wrong in thinking like that, but I just think it's so hard to see right in front of you that, that 50 meter target or the 25 meter target that pops up and you miss them and you're too focused on so far ahead. There's so many things out there. And for me, like I had to go through some of the worst parts and I think the worst day for me was the day we almost lost our son. And that day served as there, a before and after. Everything in my life was defined by certain points in my life. You have, you know, you, you meet your wife. There's the before her and after her. You know, everything got better, hopefully, after you, you've been with her. There's certain parts in your life you have a before and after that moment that's so critical to who you Never become. Never met my ex-wife. <laughs> right. Well, maybe not. Well, that's why I only have one wife. My wife, my dad has three. So, I, again, cautionary tale I avoided. Um, but when we were in the NICU uh, about a month and a half in, my wife called me from home and said, you need to get to the hospital. He was on 100% support. And I drove to the hospital and my heart, I, it was like an out-of-body experience. I could see myself driving my car as I'm getting there. And I walk into the NICU and they have these dividers up and my in-laws are there. And my wife's there and the nurses are there. And pretty much every device in the hospital surrounding my son at this point. They had bagged him. Um, they had put him on life support. And the doctors had told him and my wife and me, maybe he's been through enough. And it's time to say goodbye. I... I was never more scared than I was in that day. I, I had been through some of the worst stuff in the world and seen some of the worst stuff. And that day I was more scared than any other day of those days combined. And I was over the isolate crying so much that it was like a tin roof of tears and they're trying to hold me up. And I begged God with everything I had, I begged him and I begged him to take me. I begged him to let him have a happy life. I begged him for mercy. I begged with everything I had. And we even had him baptized because we weren't sure if he was going to live at all. They were telling us almost zero chance. And a few hours later, he started getting better after he was baptized. And I spent my entire time in that chapel that was downstairs and praying and praying and praying. And he slowly got better. And slowly got better incrementally and less monitors and less machines day by day. 
we could have had a different ending then. We could have had the worst day of my life, but I look back and everything that is not that day doesn't mean anything in the grand scheme of things because it wasn't that day. If it, if, if I'm not reliving that day, then it's not that bad of a day. And I got a second chance. And for me, I look at it and if God decides today to call my number and say, we made a deal, you told me this, I'm fine with that. You know, I've come to terms every day is an opportunity for me to spend one more day with my son that I didn't think I'd ever get. So for me, it's about extending that that period and making it be meaningful now and to say, thank you for sparing my son. Thank you for giving us this opportunity. Now I'm going to pay it forward and give back as best as I know how. And I just ask God every day, like, how else can I help? How else can I help other people? Because when I'm able to do that, it, it makes everything a little bit easier. It makes that day a little bit easier to think back to. And it also allows me to be more empathetic to others and to other dads and moms, because I know they had those days. I know they might have had multiple days like that. Um, and for me, it's just, it's changed my outlook also on how I view things that the things that I, I once had a viewpoint on, I no longer have that same viewpoint on after experiencing all of that. Like it's completely changed you. It, it changes you on a, very genetic and real level on how you look at life and how you, how you perceive things and how you appreciate things. And, you know, I, I think that in some way can be a positive because it makes you a much better person. Yeah. I mean, it's like post-traumatic growth, right? Yeah. It, it, it forces you to, to be better. Um, I kind of wanted to ask you just a, a interesting question. We had a, a previous guest who had, undergone extreme trauma just his whole family was gone like that and he said that he doesn't really think you can graduate from trauma um and it's just something that you know it's always you're always going to have it you can learn from it and grow from it um but it's always going to be there and i was just curious like you know what what's your take on that given all of this just the ups and downs and the roller coaster not just with your son but with your wife too um you know, do you agree with that or do you have any different point of view maybe I think that it always is going to be there with you. It, it's a it's a present part of who you are as a person. When we go through these trying times in our lives, it's it's part of us. And for for the good or for good or bad, it, it is part of who we are in some capacity. I do think that you can grow from it. I do I think that there's a a cure and something that you could do or you can give back enough or donate enough of your time or save enough lives that's going to replace that that trauma or that pain i don't know i i don't i don't think that's the case i think that you'll have it with you how you manage it is up to you and what you do with it is up to you that part is is very much true and i think that there's a lot of people that are out there that have it far worse and i think for me i've learned to appreciate the, the wins that i do have in my life i mean you you know, if it, when you when you deploy and you're overseas and you see other things out there, you see some stuff that changes you and you realize that you have an appreciation for your life, your country, your family, because there are some people out there that are living horrible days every single day. And I think for me, I just I try not to dwell as much on that. Um, do things eat at me sometimes? Yeah. But I think part of the military is also like one of the things with them is 
it's allowed me to be able to use the trauma in a way that I can manage it better, whether it's laughing at it, making jokes about it, um, you know, talking about it with somebody that I know and, and just sharing with them, getting it off my chest. I think every person deals with things in a different capacity and what works for one person may not necessarily work for the other person. Thanks, man. Appreciate you just being transparent about that. Oh, Brum. Uh, and just for how long were you in the army? 20 years. I, okay, uh, so you did your 20 and retired. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I uh, actually retired in 2019, about a year after my son was born. I was like, all right, it's time to dedicate to the family. Yeah. I can't go. You know, I was at that point, I was doing the guard the last 10 years of my career. I just can't. I've got to dedicate everything to my family. So anything I could remove and be done with, I did. Um, and so I'm glad that I served. It was, a, it was a wonderful time. It's taught me a ton. But now the next phase of my life is my son, my family, and doing positive things that I can do in my community and, and trying to, you know, change the world a little bit at a time. Nice. I like that. Um, so I'm going to kind of switch gears on you a little bit here. I, uh, I went to a, a axe retreat. It's a church retreat. Um, this last previous weekend, that's a pretty eye-opening conversations. Um, you know, one being coincidences, they're, they're just, there are no coincidences, honestly. Yeah. Uh, so like hearing your story and hearing the different points in it, it just kind of, you know, brought up some different thought processes, but, um, you know, one of the processes of thought I had was if something were to happen to me tomorrow, you know, you talked about if you gave your life um what my legacy or what would i want to do or what would i want from my son and one of the things i thought about was this podcast and how i know that no matter what happens to me tomorrow my son has at least 20 episodes of this and talks with good masculine christian men that i know he can go back and see who i was and see a little glimmer of you know what i would want for him so i guess my question to you would be if you know even if it wasn't tomorrow is your last day but if you just knew that there was something you wanted for your son in this life what do you think that is or something that you could give him as well i think just being able to give him memories that he can look back on and in, in a positive and to know that his dad loved him more than anything in the world and would do anything for him and i think that's all what any of us want you know is to feel the love of our dad and that genuine love. And um, hopefully that's the legacy I leave for him. And he looks back and he tells his friends how awesome his dad is and how they laugh and spend time together and that we're best friends. And if that can be it for me, that would be a wonderful thing, you know, and for me to be able to do other things to add to that, you know, to have books to be able to help out that started with his story you know, a lot of what I do is is his legacy in some ways, too, because he's an inspiration to me. Like the smallest person I ever met had the most heart and most fight than I, than I ever met in my life. And I met a lot of strong guys and a lot of strong women that could do amazing things and will themselves. And this little kid overcame so much. And now he's the love of my life. I was telling my wife the other night, you know, it, it's like is it, I asked him, is it weird that I love him more than I love you? And she said, I don't think it's weird. Like it's a different kind of love. Like you love your wife in a different way than you love your kids. But, you know, somebody put a gun to my head and say, is it your wife or your kid? 
sorry, honey, I'll see you on the other side in a few. No, it is what it is. But, so, uh, so Harvey Harvey Dent is taking your wife. Not your yeah, exactly. Oh, so it's, yeah. it's, I mean, for me, it's just like you you want to protect them and 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 let them have this wonderful life. And if he can have a wonderful life and experience it in all its beauty, and and I've given him enough good values, whenever that might be, that he can be a good person. That's what I hope for. You know, I, I think that's a hard thing to do today is getting harder every day. And I think I'm more involved every single day, um, whether I want to be or I need to be. I, I think that's what we all are having to do these days and really make sure that we're giving our kids good values, um, a strong support system, you know, something that they can rely upon and, and not go to the rest of the world for their comfort and needs. And I think, you know, kids go to the social media and their friends when really they need to be able to come to home and find their comfort and their needs and their support system. And unfortunately, not all kids have that. So if I can do that, that'd be a pretty wonderful thing. Adam, what kind of strategies can you suggest for other dads with everything you went through between your wife being very sick, um, with your son being very sick? I'm sure that had effects in your relationship. How do you stay close to your wife? How did you uh, get through that and be stronger together? That's a good question. I, I think communication is kind of the big part. And I think uh, that's something that not a lot of people do. And I think a lot of, I talk with a lot of uh, parents and I talk with a lot of spouses and a lot of moms um, as well. And sometimes they, they feel like their, their spouse is not involved and not present and doesn't care. And really they're kind of being the stoic figure and they don't realize that all that stuff happens. And that's kind of why I, I talk a lot about that stuff. Um, and I'm pretty open about it on social media or podcasts or anything like that, because maybe they're not getting that perspective and understanding that their husband really does care, but he doesn't want to add to their problems or that's how he compartmentalizes and deals with it. And inside he's really freaking out and he's scared and he doesn't know how to fix things, but he's never going to really outwardly show you that. And doesn't mean he doesn't love you, doesn't care about you and what you went through, but everyone deals with things a little bit differently. So, um, you know, I think for me, that's just, I do it a little bit differently than some people. And I think being able to just communicate that with each other, set aside time for yourselves, you know, and set aside time for them, you know, step up and be the dad and Hey, go have dinner with the girls tonight. Go do this, go do that. Go take some time for yourself and I will handle everything feedings and everything else that goes on. You know, you got to be able to, in some ways, when you you got to romance your wife at different phases, but sometimes romance could be just getting her away from the kids for an afternoon so she can be herself and watch her stupid shows that she tries to watch with you without anybody being there and it yelling at British her. And television, right? Exactly. You know, the white trash television that they watch that they try to get you to do. Um, but, you know, you got to do those things with each other and and work through it and communicate and communication sometimes can be very hard for men. Uh, it's not our strong suit at times, unless we're, you know, talking to each other. And most of the time it's, we're, we're, we're making fun of each other. We're, we're joking around and that's how we talk. And that's how guys are. That's our love language is insulting each other. Yet when we insult each other, that means we actually like each other. And to try to explain that to a woman, she's like, I don't get it. Like I'll have military friends and I'll like, literally tear into them some of the worst things i can't say on yeah. here yeah we're the well, worst with each other you, you had a really good yeah. point though like so men have have trouble regardless of communicating 
but especially when we've buried something or we are shut down or we feel hopeless because it's the one time in our life where we truly feel vulnerable. And as men, we don't know how to talk about that vulnerability sometimes. So we don't know how to talk about the issues and all the other things. So yeah, that's actually a really good point that you made there, man. Yeah. It's... I do think earlier you had a good tactic though, that is, it's not dishonesty, but it's also like you're being transparent about that you're struggling, but it's also in a way that, um, you, you know, you have to gauge your family, right? Like it, every situation is different, but you can't just like go to your wife and be like, you know, diarrhea in the mouth with all the things that are bothering you. Cause now she's like, well, whoa, like I need you husband to still like be you the can't man, hit her you with know? a fire hose. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like she's, she's going through the same thing, especially like in your case. So the, like you practicing how you were going to say it so that you're still kind of, you know, being not overly stoic, you're telling her the information, but you're, you're kind of, still showing you like hey honey i'm gonna make sure that's taken care of and you know that reassurance that that inherently you should be providing but um <laughs> you guys in the comments are killing me um but yeah i think that that's a very good tactic that um men need to realize because i think some guys fall into that trap of they just share everything and it's like that's not helping the situation you're just only building the anxiety so there's, there's a level of you need to kind of filter it in a way that it's honest it's truthful you're being transparent about if you're struggling, but it's also in a way of like, but it's okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to take care of it, or I'm going to get so and so to help out with it or, or whatever, right, whatever the topic is. But um, I think that was a good tactic. And I just want to call that out because um, I think that that's a lot of people struggle with that. It's either nothing, or it's all of it. And you got to find a happy medium. Yeah, yeah there's definitely um, too much truth out there. I mean, if, if we all could read each other's minds at any time, we would all hate each other. <laughs> so you, yeah. you have to have a little bit of a filter. I don't know, man. Like, guy, I don't think guys would hate each other because guys are the only guys that will say things to your face, but behind your yeah. back will talk like the world to everybody. Yeah. Oh, I like, love this. Oh, he's yeah. the best dude in the world. And then my wife would be like, you just called him a, an F face and you said he had a, tall, a small <laughs> cock and you said all this stuff. I'm like, yeah, that's again, that's how guys talk. And women think it's the weirdest thing in the world, yeah. how we communicate with each other. But then you talk to women and all they do is talk about their friends behind their back and how much they hate them. But we'll go out with them and be like on social media and like hashtag this and at besties right. and all that. And I'm like, yeah. who's the fake one here? Like, yeah. I'm who's, not who's the two faced one? Yeah. Yeah. We are very simple creatures. You, you, yep. what you see is what you get. We're gonna tell you the God's honest truth, and how we communicate with each other is different than how we communicate with you. I don't recommend any guy communicating with their spouse or their significant other in the way we do. But hey, if she's open for that, more power to you. Yeah, I, I had a friend I mean, actually. I'll go. Justin, real quick, because it, it ties in. I had a friend give a real, a very real world example of kind of the whole, you know, adapt it for your wife situation, which he got laid off from work um, and went to his wife and said, hey, look, things at work are changing. Um, I don't think it's going to help you if I tell you all the details. If you really want to know, I will tell you everything. Um, right now, I have a plan. I'm working on it. Um, you know, and I, I just think at this moment, you know, it's going to be better for you if if you just trust that I'm I'm going to figure it out and that we will still be provided for and you know whatever and she was like nope I trust you completely I don't really want to know right now I, I got it um, not every wife is going to say that right some no. want to know everything but like he gave her the kind of the chance and didn't just like dump everything on her right away and then down the road you know he kind of worked some things out and and kind of made sure they were taken care of and 
But when it was tight, he was like, you know, hey, honey, just maybe don't buy as much of this this month or whatever. He didn't say, oh, my gosh, I don't know how we're going to eat tomorrow, right? There's a very different way yeah. of communicating the same thing where it's still, hey, I'm being open and, and honest with you, wife, but I'm not, like, just transferring all of my anxiety onto you, right? Like We're going to do something either, called so. intermittent fasting where we just don't eat very much. It's like, hey, baby, what are your thoughts on ramen on Monday, yeah. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, yeah. Friday? I just had this conversation with my wife. She's like, how do you not eat? Like, I'll go like a whole day where like, I don't think I ate. She's like, how do you do that? I'm like, it's like the military. Like, oh, yeah. it's just, you train to live whatever. She's like, I couldn't do that. I'm like, she's like, I, she's like, I gotta eat. And I'm like, mm -hmm. just different structure, yeah. different folks. Yeah. Well, I was gonna go back to, to kind of piggyback on something you guys were talking about. So like what George said, you know, it's not always good to, to make your wife drink from the fire hose, but at the same time, masculinity, like, like I said, society, I've said this a thousand times, society is trying to muffle or just stomp out masculinity. And what we should do is be proud that we have masculine, you know, men, masculine energy around us. Like we need more of that because it is an outlet for us. And we can talk that way to each other and we can get out our griefs, our angers, our whatevers, and nobody's going to get offended because let's just be honest. Most of the people that get offended are not in our circle or they're not men because they don't understand how we tick and masculinity is not a bad thing. And that's just something I want to keep reiterating because it's something we need to drive home for anybody and everybody that sees this or just honestly that this kind of needs to spread like wildfire because men need a place to go. And that's the problem. If you called nine out of 10 guys and just random guys and said, Hey, if tomorrow something happened and you didn't know what to do, who would you call? And I guarantee you, most of them would say, no one, I have no one, or I don't know. I wouldn't call anyone because they don't want to trouble each other. But that's why we as men need to like step up and say, Hey man, like call me. Like that's why George always says iron sharpens iron. It's uh, I've used that phrase 50 times this week. And I got to say, it's true. Like you're there to help each other. You're there to like hold each other accountable, but you're also there to like, lend an ear and like just stop and listen so um uh, definitely something I, I i glad i'm glad you said yeah it's 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 important i agree the there needs to be more masculine individuals out there and being able to you know you need those people because they they take charge of situations um to help facilitate things they're my wife absolutely loves it she's like i love the fact that you're this army guy that's probably you know, killed people and done all this other stuff, even though she asked me on like our first date, did you kill anybody? Which I was in the, like, in the military. I was like, that's the first thing you never ask anybody. I was like, that's like, that's like going up to you and saying, Hey, have you had an abortion? Like that's, I don't say that to you. Like, why would you go ahead and say that to me? But she loves the fact that she knows that if anything happens, that she's protected, that she's taken care of. And women need that comfort. Like they may say that, that they don't need it. And I don't need anything. But at the end of the day, if you're really truthful to yourself, you do need it and you do want it. And it is comforting to have that there. And there are a lot of guys out there, unfortunately, that just feel like they they can't do anything at all. And it's sad to see some of the people that are out there because they just if, if this all ended tomorrow and technology went away, I feel like a third or half our society would just be so doomed with not being able to do the, the most basic things that most of us that grew up with you know, in a, an environment like that, where we were, you know, masculine or raised by dads that taught us how to do things would be okay. And they just wouldn't be. 
yeah, I think there's a lot of things that are done for us that we don't think about. And when someone does something for you all the time, you just go, oh, no big deal, right? And then all of a sudden you have to do it yourself and you realize, wow, I really did not know how to do that, you know, until you actually have done it yourself. So that's that's a key dad skill is, you know, teach your kids those basics. Um, and, you know, a lot of us just aren't doing it, unfortunately. Yeah, that's for sure. All right, guys. Well, I've uh, speaking of having to get stuff done, <laughs> I got an early morning tomorrow. So, Adam, real pleasure. Looking forward to chatting again soon. Um, thank you so much for sharing everything. I learned a lot. I didn't cry once, so I crushed it. I'm very proud of myself. <laughs> didn't happen. Had a few moments. I had to, you know, bite my tongue a little bit. But uh, wow, that's a, it's a powerful story, and I'm so happy that uh, you get to get to be a dad for your son. It's beautiful. So, thanks thank you. I appreciate it. It's good meeting you, man. Absolutely. All right. Later, Bye. D Money. I doesn't. Yeah, so uh, I'm going to shift gears. Oh, that, that view looks weird. We're going to change that. There we go. There That's we go. better. <laughs> uh, let's go. Cra craziest army story or, or craziest thing that you experienced in the army. Um, I was on an aircraft. Let's see. Craziest thing on aircraft. I was on an aircraft where the jump master got decapitated. I was. What? Yes. So I was in uh, the. I was on an aircraft on uh, Sicily drop zone. We were up in the air. And the jump master that was at the time, he was, he was a jump master training school. So he was in jump master school, was doing his door checks. And part of the door checks is obviously, you know, hangs out. He's doing his one minute, 30 seconds, checking on the ground. He went to, to lean out the aircraft. His reserve caught on the edge of the aircraft, deployed when he pulled in, and it pulled him out. He caught his neck right on and severed his, his head. His body dropped and then his head rolled out the door and I was in the back of the airplane. I really couldn't see what was going on. But my buddy was jumper number one and was right there and saw the whole thing. And so we had to land the aircraft on the drop zone. Nobody knew what was happening. Take off all of our gear. Nobody jumped out. And then we had to go walk and find the body and the head on the drop zone. Wow. All right. That, uh, that's definitely one of the weirdest stories I've ever heard. Wow. Yikes. Yeah. So uh, how many jumps had you had done at that point? Uh, I think I was on like 35 or 40 at that point. Oh, when okay. I did that. So I, I jumped the Stinger missile and all kinds of stuff. So I was like used to it. But the my buddy, like as soon as he saw that, walked in, terminated jump status. Like, I'm done. That was it. Like, I was yeah, like, I, was I, don't, ask, I don't blame so was, you. Like, you watched was the guy your next jump. Advocated. Was your next jump the hardest one you ever did? <laughs> Uh, probably. I think, you know, if I had seen it more, I think it would have been more traumatic. Um, but I think, I think it was about another month before we jumped out. I think they did a lot. They shut down a lot of the, the jumping and they ended up changing the, uh, res the reserves to actually being a different one where they pull up on it versus off the side. So that came as a result of that incident and others years later. So, um, yeah, that was a, it definitely an experience in itself. And, uh, you know, that had we've had kids that uh, we've had Afghanistan. We've had some stuff where landmines were supposed to be cleared that we dug up, and they were clearly there and dug up some landmines accidentally, and uh, lots of other fun things that I will reserve for a later date with more yeah. alcohol and friends around. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> wow, um, Jeez, man, that's wild. I, uh, I mean, it I don't know me, where to like, go after that one, man. I was my, like, <laughs> my wife's like, so it's like, I, if you deal with all that stuff, everything else is kind of relative to a degree at some point. So yeah. it doesn't really bother you as much. And so like, it goes back to like having a dark sense of humor 
And that's what a lot of military guys and a lot of guys in general, they have that sense of humor and people are like, how could you joke about that? And it's like, well, that's a, a, a technique to deal with trauma or issues or things that you see that you shouldn't see as a human being or have to deal with. And that happens in firefighters, law enforcement, medical, uh, military. You see stuff that you're not really meant to see as a human being. And sometimes that helps out. Yeah, it does. Uh, I was like, I didn't like tell her gory deals. So I told my wife, you know, that post I'm like, you wouldn't believe the conversations we had while eating meals together. <laughs> you know, it's like, the would you rather you'd have, game? You'd have the most disgusting, most ridiculous conversations while you're eating food together. It is kind of like normally those would be, you know, in any other walk of life, that'd be, you know, make people vomit at the table type of thing. But just how it is, you know. So yeah, good times, good times. That's wild though. I I didn't even know that. That's why the because like when I jumped, I had the pull up reserve. I never needed yeah. it, but yeah, because that was not, so that I, was like oh oh three. Oh, three, oh, so it was 2003, somewhere around there. I graduated so, high school. <laughs> yeah, so that's the worst part. So that's the other worst part. I went, When I went to college, that was the other weird thing, because I went to college at 28. All right, so everyone there was like 19, 18. And the worst part is when they went around the room, and it was 9-11. We were in class. And they're like, where were you on 9-11? I was like, oh, don't ask me. Don't <laughs> ask me. And I was like, I was in the 82nd, and then we deployed out like a month and a half later. And yeah. everyone in the room was like, I was in first grade. I was in second yeah. grade. I was like, oh, my God. I felt like such a weirdo being in a room full of people. Even my instructor was like, just looked at me like, are you for real? I'm like, yeah. And they, they didn't realize I was like 28 years old. So I still didn't have any gray hairs after all this stuff. So I looked a little bit younger. But yeah, that was uh, it was hard to deal with that situation and deal with a bunch of people that were 19 years old. And I was 28 just at a different point in my life. Yeah, and having already done, that's wild. Wow. Gone through yeah. things that yeah. most people at that point in their life just really can't grasp, unless yeah, kind of yeah, no, nah, I mean, been a part of something bigger like that. So, um, wild man. All right, what what about craziest fatherhood experience like post NICU? Obviously, because that's about as crazy as it gets. I feel like in terms of yeah, I mean that's that's uh, pretty crazy in itself. Yeah. Um, I guess the more normal crazy, quote unquote. I don't think I've really had too many other than it's weird. I don't really have anything too crazy um, with that. I think my son is just kind of a klutz. So I think I, I get to the point where it's like a teachable moment. So I kind of like see him do something and I push stuff away just enough so that he's not going to get really hurt. But like if he falls off, he'll have a teachable moment. And my wife's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, it's a teachable moment. And she like gets crazy to me about that. But I was like, we went through all that. Like at this point, we can't just coddle him so much. So I don't think we've had anything crazy as a parent. I think we've had, you know, blowouts that are ridiculous that my wife called me and was like, come home quick. And like, there's poop everywhere, like on his head. And you're like, how did this happen? I, um, I am in that phase right now. Yeah. You're, the, I mean, and the like, infamous what color Punani. is this? What consistency <laughs> is this? How did yeah. this even happen? Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, nothing like that. What about you guys? I just came home from the retreat and uh, my wife and son were uh, both sick with a stomach virus. I'll, I'll leave it at that without embarrassing my wife. But holy crap, man, I came home. That's the worst <laughs> diaper I've ever changed. I, I don't gag because I've been in ORs. I've smelled everything. It doesn't bother me. But I smelled this and I was like, 
I started like, I was like, okay, gotta get this mm-hmm. done quick. It was, it was pretty bad uh, as far as, you know, diapers go. Uh, craziest fatherhood story. Um, it's probably pretty much right away with the, you know, just being a new dad and not really knowing what to expect and, you know, poopy diaper, you're changing it. And then, uh, I call it the Poonami wave number two came and just poof, just projectile across me oh. the wall just and just like how does this little thing do that like i don't think i could do that i'm a grown man you know um yeah that was a pretty interesting you know one of the first diaper changes was like that but uh thankfully we've been relatively uh fortunate to not have any uh you know drastic situations or whatever where i was afraid for my daughter's life or anything like that but there was one time she just decided to up and just straight jump out of my lap off the couch, nosedived head first into the floor, had about a, you know, oh. orange sized hematoma on her head. And I was like, um, uh, that's going to go over well when my wife gets this call. And I was like, yeah, we should maybe go to the doctor. But kids do stupid stuff, man. So, uh, yeah. Do. If we're talking right. about stories. Uh, <laughs> so every time I leave town. It never fails. My son gets sick and my wife gets sick. Or one Murphy's of the other. law, dude. Yeah. Same. It's crazy. Some, so, something with the house breaks every time. Yeah. Yeah. Two months old, my son got COVID. Four, he got RSV. Um, I was in Chicago for a week when that happened. That was great and glorious. My wife was so happy when I got home. Um <laughs> thankfully, my wife's a physician, so she she got some albuterol and and he was he was fine. He didn't struggle with it. You know, not like, you know, the hospitalization like you dealt with with your kid. Um, there's a lot. We were very fortunate. Uh, COVID. And I mean, he sounded horrible. Quote, COVID was just miserable. But I mean, we never, you know, we never hospitalized him. So we were very, very fortunate. There's other parents who've had horrible stories. But uh, I will say that her uh, the birth was not a pleasant experience. Everyone talks about, oh, it's the best time of your life. Not for us. Uh, so he was eight pounds. Uh, I think Adam can relate. <laughs> yeah, well, he was eight pounds ten ounces, and my wife is uh, Gajan. She's tiny, and he's not fat. He was like muscular and wide. So he's like a little linebacker. Big That's butt. what everyone kept saying. In the, the Brock Lesnar came out of your wife. Yeah, yeah. his little <laughs> OR. Uh, the OR was like, man, he's solid. Everyone Did he have the saying linebacker on his chest? Yeah, he came oh, out boy. like no, but um, so when we were they induced my wife and they were like trying to, you know, get her to have the baby naturally. And it just was not happening. Thank God we got an epidural because she started getting in pain. Then she had contractions. So they have like a contraction rating machine and like, you're supposed to be within like an eight to 14 or something window on this machine. She was at 28. Uh, and the contractions weren't like four and five minutes apart. They were like 30 seconds. So anyways, long story short, um, the heart rate for Bennett like just plummeted from like 140 to 60 and then it disappeared. And so everyone started freaking out and I knew something was up. Cause like I said, I've been in operating rooms, my wife's physician. So, uh, they went to try to change out some devices and, and look for the heart rate and they found the heart rate, but it was very, very low. And so they rushed my wife in. I almost didn't get to, to go in and, and thank God they let me in and they, they took him to the, uh, NICU and, um, it was it was not a fun experience. I didn't even get to cut the umbilical cord, none of that stuff. Uh, but the second he was born, heart rate was good. Um, 
That's he good. was crying. He was doing all the normal stuff. And then like 20 minutes later, I had him in my arms with my mother-in-law. Actually, not even 20, probably like 10. Uh, they just checked his vitals. Everything checked out. So we were very fortunate once he was delivered. They had a hard time getting him out of the portal, <laughs> which was funny. But uh, everything was great after he get, you know, got delivered. And, and we're very, very fortunate there. So uh, up to was not fun. But once he was and there. She, and she like, pushed for that? Oh God, no, no, they, uh, they, they sectioned her immediately. I was going to say, uh, if she we went you from one room to the, or something, man. Yeah. We went from one room to the, uh, to the operating room within like five minutes and they already were cutting on her. So yeah, they did a test cut and she couldn't feel anything thankfully. And it was crazy because they're not supposed to let you have phones, but she's sitting there on her phone texting people and she's like, just drugged out of her mind. I'm like, Ainsley, what are you doing? <laughs> you know? So it was wild. It was a, it was a crazy experience, but that's about the wildest. We thankfully haven't had any like scares and knock on wood, hopefully never will, but that's good. Know. Yeah, that's about it. All right, Adam, uh, we really appreciate your time and uh, just sharing your stories. And I just wanted to give you a chance for any, any final thoughts or any final things you wanted to mention before we wrap. Uh, no, I just, I appreciate you guys having me on. It's been great to talk with the, all of you guys and share your experiences with me and allow me to share my experiences and, um, if there's any dads out there or any families out there, again, they can reach out to me through social media. Um, I've got a ton of resources that are out there. So I, I've got a lot of contacts uh, in NICU supports, um, nonprofits, support systems all over the world. I've got contacts in Australia, to the UK, wherever it may be. Um, so if they need support, they need anything like that, let me know. Um, I have a dad's group that meets three times a month so they can reach out to me on social media. Uh, at rprevieadventures at gmail.com or through my website. You can reach out to me there. Um, we have a, a men's group that we have for any dads that are pastor present in the NICU um, that they can come on any point with that. And there's a support system set up for that. Um, and again, I, I appreciate you guys having me on. It was a great time and really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, man, it's been good. And uh, Same, brother. Yeah, I mean, I think this is, like you said, we, you got to share this message and people need to understand what it is. Um, and so if anyone ends up in this boat, now they have a resource to, to learn from it. So I, I just love that you took it upon yourself. You feel like, um, you have a calling and that you're, you're taking this painful experience and doing something positive with it. And, uh, you know, I'm sure the army training had nothing to do with that, but I, I'm just glad that you, um, you know, felt that responsibility and are taking something with it. So. Um, for everyone listening, you can check out premiadventures.com. That's probably the first place to look in terms of resources and books and where to order them. Uh, in his Instagram, hilarious memes. I see them pretty much every day and always get a laugh out of them. Uh, that is premiadventures. Uh, is it at premiadventures or yeah, at, at my premiadventures? Okay. At premiadventures yeah. on uh, Instagram. And then you have a Facebook group as well. Yep. Um, Premium Adventures, I assume it should come right up. Yep. And the logo is is the book cover, right? Yep, book cover. That's the first book cover. And then uh, they have access, again, to all kinds of links. We share all kinds of stuff. Um, and then I'll actually be talking as well on uh, May 7th. Uh, Graham's Foundation is hosting a Parents of Premium Day. So I'll be speaking at that. We'll be doing book giveaways. And we'll also be having a ton of other guests and other families sharing their stories. So uh, if anybody wants to check them out, Graham's uh, Foundation is a, is a wonderful foundation that helps a lot of people all over the United States and kind of all over the world as well. So check that out. That's so cool, man. Um, awesome. And the final place they can look you up is on Twitter at NICU Adventures. 
That's right. All right, so nice. go check Adam out. Uh, check out the books, and uh, please consider a donation or finding a way that you can support or help the cause or just share it with people who maybe need to hear this. So, um, Adam, it's been a, a true pleasure. And um, absolutely, just very thankful that your family's come through this and wish you nothing but the best moving forward. Thank you, guys. God bless you both. God bless all, all the guys that was on as well. Yep. You too, bro. All right. We'll all see right. you all in the next one. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Present Fathers Podcast. Make sure that you subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Spotify to catch all of our amazing episodes. We will see you in the next one.